Hello, and welcome to Outward, Slate's monthly show about the L's, the G's, the B's, the T's, and oh yes, the Q's as well. <laughs> I'm Jules Gill Peterson, America's favorite female Grinch impersonator. <laughs> I'm Christina Cotarucci, a senior writer at Slate. And I'm Brian Lauder, and I edit things at Slate. Well, it's December, and that means, I guess, that the year 2022 is almost over? Oh, what a great showing. (laughs) I'm sorry, I thought it was 2020 still, but whatever. (laughs) In a tribute to a year that was certainly a mixed bag for us queers, uh, we've got two segments that sort of have a lot of food for thought. So one of them reflects on a really painful impact of anti-LGBTQ violence this year, and the other digs into some new possibilities for trans storytelling and filmmaking. So first we'll talk through our very complicated feelings about one of the responses to the shooting at Club Q in Colorado Springs last month, which is the kind of question of whether we should be organizing in self-defense or how, or whether we should maybe even be arming ourselves for protection. Christina, Brian, and I will bring a few interesting examples and even some historical precedents to unpack together. And then, hey, have you heard, listeners? I'm in a movie. (laughs) Okay, sorry. That's actually, that's the really selfish version of it. Let let me try that again. A new hybrid documentary (laughs) film, Framing Agnes, is premiering in New York, LA, and select cities in North America. The film explores the never-before-seen stories of trans people whose case files from the University of California, Los Angeles in the 1950s were unearthed by filmmaker Chase Joint and brought to life by a star-studded cast. One of those stars, the ultra-talented Jen Richards, is joining us to talk about the film in which I, to come clean, am your humble narrator. We'll also have our usual prides and provocations and updates to the gay agenda. But first, we have something to share from our thoughts and queries inbox. Uh, We received a really heartfelt voice memo from Quigley, who felt the impact of the New York Times article on puberty blockers we discussed last month quite intensely, in part because they've had to deal with osteoporosis for real. Uh, but actually because they were forced by their parents and an endocrinologist to take birth control as a teenager to try and make them more gender conforming and basically cis, which was exactly the opposite of what they needed at that time in their life. So let's listen to a little bit of what Quigley had to share with us. At this endocrinologist, I was given a bone scan and then my parents were told that if I did not consent to taking estrogen-based birth control every day, that I would be on a Zimmer frame at 30, which one, is ableist as fuck, and also is not true because birth control is not a treatment for bone density loss or lack of growth. I was forced against my will to take those pills for 10 years. So our, our thanks, really. Thank you, Quigley, for, for sharing that very powerful and personal testimony. Again, I just think really speaking to the fact that there are stories, you know, mm-hmm. sitting behind mm-hmm. all of the headlines that we hear or that we see landing uh, in our news feeds. There are real lives impacted and the stories that are actually there are not always the ones that we're um, being told about in the media. 
If you have a thought or query for us, please let us know. You can write to us at outwardpodcast at slate.com. But we especially love to hear your gorgeous voices. So you could also send us a voice memo like Quigley if you're so inclined. Yes, we absolutely love to hear your voices. Um, We have yet to have someone send us a singing uh, thought or query, but I'm Mm. hoping that sometime before this time next year, we'll get our first one. Perhaps it could be you. On that note, who's proud, who's provoked? Let's share our prides and provocations. Brian, how are you feeling this month? So despite not getting an invitation myself, I have to say that I'm proud this month of the slightly chaotic gay who seems to have done the guest list uh, for the Respect for Marriage Act signing <laughs> at the White House. This was this happened earlier uh, earlier this month. Um, you know, President Biden signed the RMA, I believe it's being called, and there was a big gathering of, of various uh, important people there for it. Um, and we saw some you know coverage in the press about about who these people were. You know, normally this kind of political theater doesn't really like interest me very much, but but the reports from this made it sound like it was a real mix of uh, of, of different folks from the community. Um, you know, we had the typical sort of power gays like Chad Griffin and Hillary Rosen. Um, there's a really uh, great uh, piece in New York Magazine and the Intelligencer by Sean McCreish that's like the sort of page six of like who all was there and like the after parties mm-hmm. and stuff. Uh, apparently the Acela uh, Amtrak train from New York to DC that morning was really popping off. But in addition <laughs> to those folks, we also had drag performers like Shangela, Britta Filter, and Marty Cummings were in attendance, which, you know, is not insignificant uh, a statement at, sort of at this moment when drag and, you know, the dangers that it poses to the children have become the right obsession. But then there were also like some middling DJs, like act actors that you've seen in like one episode of American Horror Story. Sam Sam Smith like sang a song, uh, as did Cindy Lauper. And then I just saw people on Instagram who had like no apparent reason for being there, like taking selfies, except for being gay, I guess, or queer. So I don't know. The whole thing felt like this sort of time warp from 10 years ago somehow, but like, I don't know. I guess given all the attacks that we're under these days, like we should celebrate when we can. Um, And yes, chaotic gay at the White House event uh, department. Put us on the list next time, please. (laughs) Jules, what's up with you this month? Well, I'm feeling very proud. I think it's a pride we all share. Um, You know, this pride has to do with memes. It has to do with Jennifer Coolidge. It has to do with the unbelievable gay memes that Jennifer Coolidge has gifted us in the season two finale of The White Lotus. I don't want to spoil anything. Thank you. I still actually just watched it last night. Yeah. I was about to leave the room. (laughs) All right, well, no spoilers, but let's just say if you want high stakes gay chicanery, if you want (laughs) Jennifer Coolidge delivering memorable lines that include the gays over and over again, for example, maybe like, please, these gays, they're trying to murder me. And things like that. Well, then you're going to want to tune in and watch this entire season of, of The White Lotus, which, of course, you know, Mike White is gifting us um, you know, ass for yeah. the ages when it comes to when it comes to the silver screen, and then just to get what we get from our from our goddess, from our Lord and Savior Jennifer Coolidge. I mean, I am not the first person to say it, and I will not be the last. But mwah, we love. Thank you, darling. You truly, truly did something uh, unique and memorable, and frankly, 
exactly what I needed. Mm-hmm. Like just the perfect feeling to cap off a really weird year. <laughs> so, so grateful yeah. for that. Well, I hate to break it to you guys, but uh, I'm provoked again. So I don't know if you guys read this story that I published mm. yesterday and was yes. really buzzy, I should say. Uh, I found through a tipster, thank you, thank you, thank you to that person, Kirsten Cinema's Facebook Marketplace account. Kirsten Cinema, you know, noted bisexual in the US Senate from mm-hmm. Arizona. Um, she's selling all kinds of items, mostly related to triathlon stuff, like racing bikes and cycling gear and outfits from this brand whose slogan is badass is beautiful (laughs) and do epic shit. And they love putting periods after Mm -hmm. every word. So here's why I'm provoked. And I'm, and I'm allowed to bring this in, although it's not specifically LGBT related because she is, as I've mentioned before, a bi. Kirsten Cinema is charging on her Facebook Marketplace account $30 for a trucker <laughs> hat that retail new costs $29.99, <gasps> casting shame on the entire LGBT community. Oh my God. A markup on, on her, her used, used hat. hat. A trucker yeah. hat, no less. A Twitter user named Graf Masara tweeted. All I can really say about this is that no bisexual is ever truly free from the trap of buying and reselling <laughs> weird clothes online. <laughs> We've received confirmation mm-hmm. on that fact from one of our buys here at Slate. So it's gospel as far as I'm concerned. And that to me means that if Kirsten Cinema is conducting herself poorly on Facebook Marketplace, it reflects poorly on the entire buy yeah. community. And that's something that provokes me. The other part of it is that her office would not confirm to me that it was her, even though a truly insane number of coincidences would have had to align for this to not be her, plus like someone probably stalking her. And it was obviously her, but because they couldn't confirm it, you know, for legal reasons, I had to be kind of sly in the piece. The fact that she couldn't even confirm that to her queer sibling. I mean, come on, we all use the internet. Buys uh, apparently are are specifically known for buying and reselling um, cycling gear online. I don't know. I don't want to disparage anybody. And then, hours after I published the piece on December 15th, a local reporter from Arizona published a blog post saying, I have been reporting on Kirsten Cinema since the mid-2000s when, you know, she was coming up in Arizona politics. And at that time, as kind of a hazard of the job, you had to be following all these people on Facebook because that was where a lot of stuff went down before Facebook became the purview of all of our boomer (laughs) parents and apparently this Gen X clothing resale senator. Um, But so this reporter, this Arizona reporter said, you know, I clicked on some of these links in Christina Cotarucci's article. And yes, the person selling those things is indeed the same Kirsten Cinema that I've been following since the mid 2000s and with whom I have, you know, 143 Mm -hmm. mutual friends. It's actually her. So they have since confirmed it, Um, which is why I can say with no qualifications on this podcast that Kirsten Cinema is selling her used bikinis (laughs) on Facebook Marketplace. The whole boondoggle has kind of provoked me as much as it has also delighted me. It has not given me particular pride. Um, to be under the same LGBT umbrella as Kirsten Cinema. 
So in the wake of the attack at Club Q in Colorado Springs last month, um, I came across a post on Instagram that, that really caught me off guard. It was from Mary Emily O'Hara, who's a journalist who's currently working in communications at CLAD. They had posted a video and some photos of themselves doing sh target practice at a shooting range. Um, and I just want to read their caption. They wrote, no matter how you feel about guns, it never hurts to have a little tactical training and be prepared for a potential situation. I know a lot of other queers are feeling sketched out about going to gay bars, pride, or even drag brunch because of all the threats. Personally, I want to know that if some douche shows up with a loaded AR-15 and starts pointing it at my friends, I'm at least somewhat qualified to help take him down. We keep us safe. So amid all the you know grief and horror that the Club Q murders elicited, a sort of militant queer answer to anti-queer violence was another kind of response. And Mary was really not alone in their conviction that, as they put it, we keep us safe. I noticed people hearkening back to historical movements of gay and trans neighborhood watches and safety patrols like the Butterfly Brigade in San Francisco. I saw a number of other folks advocating uh, getting nightlife workers and patrons armed. And I myself even attended an active shooter de-escalation training. You know, I think these reactions make a certain kind of sense, but they also left me feeling queasy. Are guns and self-defense training and hypervigilance really the only answer to the threats that we and our loved ones are facing? Are queerness and this kind of militancy compatible? I've been thinking about these things for the last couple of weeks, and I just am really grateful that, I, that maybe we can talk through it all today, because I think we all feel a bit queasy about this. So maybe mm -hmm. as a starting place, I'd love to hear like what other sorts of examples of queer militant reaction that y'all saw sort of in the world after Club Q and, and how did those those kinds of things make you feel? <laughs> I mean, I, you know, I, I think I paid a lot of attention to the let's arm ourselves stuff in part because I feel like it's a thing that, um, you know, it's been conversation particularly among some trans women yeah. for like quite a long time because we've like long experienced really disproportionate violence. But also like, you know, <laughs> I'm from Canada, I did not grow up around guns. And also like, you know, my family is originally from India. I grew up hearing stories about, you know, the Indian National Congress and Gandhi's, you know, nonviolent tactics and was sort of, you know, led very much, you know, into this kind of imagination that politics should always be nonviolent and that resistance to oppression should always be nonviolent. And, you know, it's like, it's not as if life isn't very complicated and I haven't thought about those things over the years, but I feel like, you know, when there are such intense, you know, discrete events of violence, it really kind of jogs mm -hmm. all of that and sort of brings it up to the surface. And I feel like, you know, many years ago, many years ago, when I moved to America, I used to be like, oh, this, you know, cultural differences, you know, I'll still never forget, like once I was, I think I was landing in Arizona to to do something for the weekend, and I was like, "Let's see who's hot on on Tinder." <laughs> and I like put out a broadcast that was like other trans girls to the front, and I kept like seeing profiles where like the first picture was like a white trans girl in the desert with like an mm. assault rifle, like doing, oh you know, cause there's like a whole thing there. And I remember being like, cool. So you're like not at the top of my list. I personally <laughs> am not attracted to that. Um, but like all of that feels kind of quaint, you know, when I look at, you know, obviously the context today is a little more immediate and specific, but, but part of it to me, I feel really caught between him. Like, is this just a changing, 
problem in American culture, guns and gun violence in general, right? And like LGBT people are sort of swept up in how things have changed in the last even five, 10, 15 years, how laws have changed, you know, the degree of violence where it takes place have changed, or is there something really specific, right, to like queer and trans mm. people um, or around LGBT public spaces like bars, right? And I'm not, I'm not sure. Um, and I feel like that's one of the, one of the challenges or one of the ambivalences I'm still really, really feeling, um, you know, not just after last month, but certainly feeling it mm-hmm. anew since last month. I totally relate to that. In fact, after the Club Q shooting, I was kind of asking myself just why I didn't feel the same kind of fear, I guess, that I felt Mm. after the Pulse massacre, which actually um, ended up being a little bit more complicated than it uh, initially seemed in terms of the motive of the shooter. But I think it's just because there are so many mass shootings in the U.S. that Mm. to me, it didn't feel particularly more dangerous to go to a gay bar after Club Q than it did to go to the grocery store mm. or a movie theater or a school or a subway or literally anywhere else. Because, you know, although obviously we know LGBTQ people are disproportionately targeted by violence and, you know, especially trans and gender nonconforming people, especially queer and trans people of color, it feels like in terms of mass shootings and not sort of individualized bias motivated violence, it could be anyone anywhere. And while there are hate motivated shootings, there are also plenty of not hate motivated shootings. So that was a a really devastating realization to me that Mm -hmm. I felt like, oh yeah, you know, this sort of um, hate crime just sort of blends into the background of a, a constant feeling of like, well, it, it might just be a matter of time before me or someone close to me ends up in a space where a shooter shows up. I definitely am of the mindset, and this is just a fact, that like the presence of a gun anywhere makes it more likely that any sort of skirmish or argument turns deadly. Yeah. So I do not support guns as products. Um, and I, I would never advocate for more arming of people, especially not LGBTQ people, especially not LGBTQ spaces where, which are often spaces where like drinking and drug use happens. Um, and especially, you know, if you have a gun in your home, you're more likely to die by suicide by gun. That scares me. Like when I think about what it means to keep us safe, I don't think that guns keep people safe. And that's sort of the bottom line for me. At the same time, I can't blame any individual people for wanting to arm themselves if that makes them feel safe. Because I think, um, you know, the likelihood that an armed LGBT person is going to take down a mass shooter uh, with that gun successfully are are so slim. Like even that you'd be in this situation, that you'd be able to do that successfully. And so it's more about how it makes an individual person feel, I think. Um, Mm -hmm. I do think we should all train in using a firearm safely on the chance that we end up somewhere where there's a loaded firearm and we need to know Mm. how to not make it go off in a way that harms someone. You know, in preparation for this episode, I sort of looked into a couple of these different um, LGBTQ Mm -hmm. gun groups. And also, you know, some have sort of popped up as general, like, anti just sort of leftist like anti-white supremacy 
um, mm-hmm. armed groups that have um, gained popularity or started after the Charlottesville Unite the Right march and other sort of resurgent right-wing violent gatherings around the country. And um, doesn't feel like necessarily a trend um, because I'm not sure how many people are actually signed up, but it does feel like there's a not insignificant number of people who are finding some sort of comfort and empowerment in the idea of having the same deadly weapon that the people who hate us have. Christina, you told us when we were preparing for this episode that you actually, I think for as research for a story, actually got a gun and it's, mm-hmm. you've, you know, we're quick to say that it, you know, have no bullets for it. So it's not dangerous in your house. <laughs> But I wondered, I mean, just going off of what you were just talking about, like, how does that feel? Like, like, what what does it feel like to just have that sort of in your, you know, in your in your proximity to yourself? I don't know. Like, I. Yeah, this was part of the idea for the story. And, you know, stay tuned, listeners, because it might happen in some form still. But it was a couple years ago. The idea Mm. for the story was very much, you know, person who is completely opposed to guns gets one and tries to sort of figure out (laughs) what the big deal is and, you know, gets trained and all that. And my experience was very interesting. So first off, in my gun, like, permit class, I was the only white person. Everyone else was black, the other students and the teacher. And that really changed the way people talked about why Mm. they wanted a gun. And even the teacher, you know, he was using... NRA like slides mm. because they make a lot of gun education materials hmm. but he was very quick to say like I don't support their politics and also talking about um, self-defense in racialized terms which uh, again it's it's hmm. the kind of thing where I'm like you know if 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 this is what makes people feel safe and this is how they believe they can keep themselves safe I can't blame yeah. anybody for feeling yeah. that way but so that was a sort of a surprising community for me to be a part of in terms of my gun training and and the way I like received the gun information that everybody who wants a gun permit in Maryland, which is where I got certified, um, has to go through. Um, and then I also went shooting with a like leftist vegan <laughs> who's an internet celebrity for rescuing <laughs> neonatal cats. Um, she's like a small femme cis woman with like long blonde hair and a lot of tattoos. She's very striking and beautiful. And when we went to this gun range, and she has a gun for self-protection and has, you know, personal reasons for for doing that and feeling like she needs that protection. So we went shooting at the NRA range in Virginia and a man started hitting on her. And it really felt like, not that it was necessarily harassment, but it was... It, it felt like this is not really a safe place for anybody to say, like, mm-hmm. yes or no to a come on. And it made me think about what it would mean for queer and trans people to put themselves in the same spaces as That's other people who are shooting guns, who may not be, uh, who, who might, you know, be a member of the Proud Boys that are going to show up at the Drag Queen Story mm-hmm. Hour that you're arming yourself to counter protest. So the, but the thing that surprised me and and it probably shouldn't have, was that I could have gotten the permit without basically ever having shot a gun. Mm. So to get a concealed carry permit, the people who were getting one who lived in Maryland and wanted a Maryland certificate had to go through some sort of a shooting training and, you know, hit have like 70% accuracy or something. I got a different permit that uh, worked in Virginia and, and 30 other states. It's called the Utah permit. 
And for that, I wouldn't have ever had to shoot a gun. And so I have this extraordinarily powerful machine in my home without the materials to use it. Like you said, I don't have any bullets in it. But just knowing that I have this thing that I've shot now, I think, on three different occasions (laughs) that could kill somebody. And, you know, I I haven't used it in years. I, like, forget how to operate it, actually. It's frightening and sobering when I think about the fact that literally anyone could get one of these and could be carrying it at any point in time. When January 6th happened and I live, you know, about a mile north of the Capitol or whatever, my wife was kind of like, should we keep your gun near the door? Like in case one of these militia Mm. people like comes by and we need to threaten them. And I was like, what? what would we do with it? You know, (laughs) we couldn't use it. I would not trust myself to fire it. We don't have bullets for it, even if I did. And I think you don't want to be threatening someone with a gun unless you're prepared to use it. But it did, um, you know, for like a split second, put me in that mindset of, would there ever be a scenario in which I would want a loaded weapon in my home? And the answer was definitely no. Right. I saw recently that... A leftist group called the John Brown Gun Club, which has a lot of queer and trans members, but is not, I think, specifically an LGBTQ group, went to protect a drag event that was happening in Texas where armed right-wing militia-type people were coming to protest. And while I felt grateful that there were counter-protesters there that were as visually threatening as the right-wing protesters, it was really scary to think about how easily that situation could turn into a mass death event or a mass injury event because it only takes one person and, you know, emotions are high. We all know that like physical skirmishes can happen at these places and in confrontations like that. And when everyone's got a deadly weapon, it does not seem that difficult for it to spiral out of control. And so, um, It's it's scary to watch, even even when my knee-jerk reaction is a little bit like, fuck yeah, um, we're scary too. Yeah, I mean, I find myself, as you're talking about that, being pretty convinced that I don't think that that, that sort of uh, direct, you know, force-for-force response is, like, the world I want to be in, right? Like, like, that doesn't seem, that seems like a recipe for disaster, as you say. But I'm wondering, I don't really have an answer for this uh, yet, but like, are there any alternatives that feel queerer? I mean, people, so in this sort of uh, discourse that happened right after the shooting, people were looking back to uh, the 1970s, specifically at these sort of safety patrols. Um, I'm going to read just a quick paragraph from this book, um, Safe Space, Gay Neighborhood History and the Politics of Violence by Christina Hanhart. Um, where she talks about this and sort of defines what we're talking about. So, gay safe streets patrols popped up and almost as quickly disappeared across San Francisco and New York during the 1970s. A priest and his following of mostly young gay men and trans women carried shotguns in San Francisco's tenderloin. Gay men calling themselves butterflies blew whistles among pastel Victorians in the Castro. And guardian leathermen relied on the threat of hypermasculinity in New York's Chelsea and San Francisco's uh, South of Market. All were short-lived, and many were more stunts or, or promises than efforts at sustained vigilance. Nonetheless, they were a crucial part of the political landscape during uh, the years after gay liberation and before AIDS. Those sound like interesting models, but I, as I was sort of reading up on them and reflecting on it, I'm not sure if they're applicable to this, or, or are they? Maybe that's a question 
for y'all. Do, do you mm. think that, that something like that where, you know, with the butterfly brigades, it was if street violence started to happen, everybody had these whistles and would start blowing to, like, you know, bring attention to the, to the situation. Maybe that could work, but in, in like, the hyper-violent world that we live in now, I'm not sure. I, I don't know, if Jules, if you have thoughts about, about that comparison. Yeah, no, I mean, I think it's it's really interesting just, you know, listening to both of you, right? It's like part of this has to do with how much has changed yeah. historically in America, right? Because self-defense is like self-defense mm-hmm. against what? Against who, right? In what context? And I mean, it's really interesting because on the one hand, things feel a lot more violent because of guns, right? But, you know, speaking historically, empirically, right, by all available measures and data. I mean, the 1960s and 70s were much, much Mm. more violent um, on the whole in the Mm. aggregate than anything, you know, since the 90s. I mean, we just don't live in particularly violent times, at least if that's Mm. a reference point, right, 60s and 70s. But the context was so different because there hadn't been the kinds of legal decisions, right, around what the Second Amendment means. There hadn't yet been kind of reaction to black militants arming themselves, particularly in California, you know, things that like Governor Reagan passed, um, legislation that he signed into law, you know, in response to Black Panthers. Um, But also just like, I mean, I think about this all the time. For one thing, if we go back to Stonewall, right? Okay, a riot, but like, you know, famously, mm-hmm. no one died at Stonewall. Well, one of the reasons is that self defense at the time is all about the police. The police are the most dangerous right. public omnipresent force for queer and trans people. And it hits harder, right? If you're, you know, poor or unhoused or gender nonconforming or person of color. Right. But the resistance to the police at Stonewall was quite violent. Like, you know, I remember at the 50th anniversary event I attended in New York, I listened to Stonewall veterans talk about chasing, you know, NYPD up the streets of the village and picking up trash can lids and beating the shit out of them, not killing them, but beating them up to disarm them. But one of the reasons they could do that is because those cops didn't have guns. Right. Um, But also then you know, by the same token, they didn't have guns. They were at a bar, right? And they weren't going to have guns. Otherwise, it was never really a part of, like, gay liberation never really, like, floated the idea of, like, armed revolution. Um, so, and, sorry, just to clarify, yeah. police didn't carry guns back then? No, not not routinely, not wow. beat cops. No, they would have had nightsticks, right? So that's things, like, the police were very violent. They beat gay people and trans people, specifically gender yeah. nonconforming people, a lot, right? And... I mean, this is, I think, the really challenging part of it is a lot of those safety brigades and organizing responses that happened in the 70s. You know, I've spent a lot of time looking at um, one trans lib organization in Miami, and one of their biggest hot button issues is the police violence, that police would pick up, you know, trans women, you know, in Miami, in South Beach, especially, you know, who are just like out and about. Some of them might be doing sex work, but some of them might just be hanging out or walking down Mm -hmm. the street, coming home from a bar. And, like, violence was incredibly, incredibly widespread, and a lot of it, though, is institutionally abetted. So it's the police taking you back to the station and then sexually assaulting you or raping you Mm -hmm. before releasing you, right? That is, like, one of the number one issues this trans organization I've been researching is trying to deal with, right? But they don't... But the cops aren't using guns, right? And so the the, the idea of meeting that force, like, you can't meet it with symmetrical force because they want to reduce 
sexual violence, they would right, never, right, you know, right. it just doesn't make any sense, right? So they, they have to come up with all sorts of ways to obviously petition, right? You know, try and get policies changed, try and get it covered in the news, try and drum up public support, try and name and shame particular officers or precincts. But they also call on like other, they, they like, you know, this is a network that's like plugged into the, you know, into community, Latino and um, Caribbean communities. They hold like ceremonies that, you know, like have curses put on oh, these nice. officers. Wow, yeah. Uh, you know, there's a, yeah, there's a famous example from Los Angeles in the 70s where gay lib people went to a police station after a gay man and a trans woman had been murdered by the cops and they tried to collectively levitate the police station off the ground and make it disappear, right? And it's like, okay, well, obviously it didn't work, but like, I kind of understand the dilemma yeah. there because they're living in a time period where gun violence is just doesn't work the way or on the scale that it does today, but the everyday quality of lived violence is actually quite high. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and the kind of idea of like, how do we keep ourselves safe? I think this conversation has to do with changing definitions mm. of safety, right? And like, I think that 70s moment is also so much about how, you know, the, the sort of urban segregation of working class, um, LGBTQ people, queer and trans people in the bar scene in seedier, quote unquote, seedier neighborhoods, like the Tenderloin, right? Or like, um, you know, different parts of New York City or whatever, just means that like, people looking to exploit people or, you know, like that, like the idea of being at risk of um, interpersonal violence, just like in everyday life is sort of the omnipresent issue alongside the Mm. police and that no one cares what happens there. Right. And so it's sort of this kind of like, we have to take care of ourselves because our whole lives are in an underground, but but things are so different today. Right. It's like, we still gather and go to bars and we still have our own spaces and there is still class and racial segregation, obviously to an extreme extent, but, there's this different sense of the public and the shared world, right? Where on the one hand, you know, queer and trans people have made a series of claims on being a part of the common world, the public, the nation, whatever, right? And so the violence has a different register, Hmm. not just because it's gun violence and it's so spectacular, but also because it's seen as a symbolic attack on a huge like swath of a community that stretches across the country and maybe has support everywhere versus like this era when it was like, well, no one looks out for us in the tenderloin. The police won't even investigate the girls if they get murdered while they're working. So we have to take care of ourselves, right? And I just think, again, it's like, I don't know, when we really dig into those differences, like they actually feel incredibly pronounced. And I, I don't know. I mean, I certainly feel like it's not obvious to me what lesson to take away from any of that. In, in the 21st century, it just seems like the situation is just profoundly different. And actually, public space is really different now because those kinds of um, kind of gay neighborhoods actually don't exist that much anymore. And the ones that do are very gentrified and very yeah. high income. And yeah. it actually, that that's something that has really changed how people like respond to outbreaks of violence. Like, you know, if if as recently has been reported in Chelsea, it seems like someone has been targeting, you know, gay men at bars, right? Well, like Chelsea is a really wealthy zip code now and the people who live there and the people who own businesses have a series of direct connections to municipal levers of Mm -hmm. power and can make claims in really traditional respectable ways that like in the seventies in Chelsea, right, um, they wouldn't have been able to. So I just think like there is a little bit of an apple oranges thing for me, right? That I think also, Christina, I feel like you were sort of narrating for us how that feels 
from the first person perspective, right? Where it's like, well, do I even feel empowered? And that kind of anecdote with your wife, right? About like January 6th, I think is so apt, right? Where it's like, what would we even do? And also like, yeah. what is that threat? How does that threat even make sense? Like, will it come to our front door, even though it's very close by, right? We just live in a really different right. time and space. It's hard to know. When you talked about the whistleblowing, Brian, it made me think mm-hmm. about just a general uh, lack of willingness among people these days, or maybe ever, to intervene when something mm. bad is happening. Mm. Um, even if they know something bad is happening, two things happened recently that made me less sure that anybody would intervene, even in a, a like a non-mass shooting situation in just a person-on-person, like, gay-bashing scenario. One was I got groped on the street in broad daylight at a bus stop and was yeah. yelling at the person who did it and sort of, like, kicked him, and he kind of stumbled away. No and everyone happened. else just mm. stood there. And I was, like, crying, Jesus. and literally just no one wanted to, like, come out of their own little bubble on their phone or whatever to say mm-hmm. anything. And another, someone very close to me, a Butch Dyke, got... Just the other day, like a man at Union Station yelling at her, you're going to hell, you're gay, da da da. And everyone else in the taxi line just stood there and didn't even like ask if she was okay, much less Mm -hmm. confront the person doing it. And, you know, I think it it would obviously be a very different situation in a queer space. You know, obviously there would be a lot more people to to recognize that kind of um, like verbal harassment and, and do something about it. But I feel like the threshold for somebody to be willing to get involved has gotten so yeah. high. I have taken like de-escalation trainings that have nothing to do with disarming people, but are more about like trying to get verbal harassment Bystander, to stop. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Bystander intervention. Yeah. There you go. Um, and I think that's really useful for people. I would also like to know how to maybe disarm someone yeah. again, <laughs> just because that feels useful. And in fact, the that's how the Club Q shooting um, was stopped before it became even more deadly was uh, somebody at the club who had mm-hmm. military training straight, and straight uh, said afterwards, a straight man, you know, knew what to do and also said that he was like traumatized from being in the military and so was hypervigilant, which is a terrible situation and just extremely sad that um, that was the thing that sort of possibly allowed him to react so quickly. But if more of us had that kind of training, like not just for when we're in trans and queer spaces, but when we're out in public, like perhaps I'd feel Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because, you know, I, I agree with you, and I guess in principle that that it would be better if a lot more of us had that right, that kind of de-escalation training or that bystander intervention training. However, having just attended one of those things, you lose something by doing this too. Like now, when I go to a space like a gay bar where before I think the whole idea was to kind of you know let your hair down and be like be free and not be vigilant and the way that that we are uh, all you yeah. know that, that queer people sort of tend to have to be in most of their lives suddenly now I'm like threat assessing right like I'm like looking around the room who's acting weird like who am I to judge who's acting weird right where are the exits like all of those things that are absolutely good for safety and make sense steal some of like the joy out of out of those places and I I don't know if there's any way around that but it, it just strikes me that yeah like that guy that you mentioned who who was certainly you know a hero but at like what cost to himself, you know, like that, that, those skills and that vigilance came at a cost to him. 
I don't know. It makes me sad to think that that the only way to to, to protect ourselves and our our queer family is to kind of give up. Maybe it's giving up naivete. I don't know. Maybe I'm thinking about it the wrong way. But hmm. but you know what I mean. It's like it, that you lose something when you become yeah. when you become yeah. trained uh, in this way. Um, and I don't know what to do with that. Yeah, I mean, I think one thing, I mean, I don't think there are obviously definitive categorical no. answers to these questions. And that's partly why, you know, I think one of the reasons that we all felt like we wanted to talk about this on the show this month is just that it's not obvious how to make space to sit with the ambivalence. And, you know, one thing I'll say as someone who, for what it's worth, you know, studies violence, right, and has read a lot of scholarship on violence and has spent time sort of in the slightly, slightly dissociated, slightly alienating, but also kind of positively, you know, distanced kind of realm of academic analysis and thinking about other time periods, too, is like, you know, I think part of the challenge that we really face right now is that there are spectacular and discrete events of violence that understandably mm. capture our attention that take up a lot of space. You know, when people lose their lives, when people die, I mean, death often feels like, you know, the ultimate kind of referendum. And because gun violence is spectacularized, right? I mean, that is part of its sort of, you know, yeah, performance, yeah. so to speak. That's a bit of a perverse use of that word. But like, because of that, of course, it, 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 it gathers attention and it feels, or it, in the way that it's so alarming, right? It asks this sort of question, like, is this the allegory for something, right? Are we at the beginning of some yeah. sort of more widespread yeah. violence? But also I think often then we become so fastened to the like life or death questions, right? Part of the challenge. And I think part of what maybe, you know, talking about the sixties and the seventies also reminds us is that there are other scales of mm. suffering. Um, and there are frankly other scales or speeds of death that are very yeah. slow um, that wear people out over decades. There is all sorts of premature death that queer and trans people statistically in the aggregate experience because we have to deal with so much shit in the world. We don't live as long. We are more likely to be ill. We don't have access to the same healthcare and resources, right? We have to live in different parts of town and those are compounded by race and class in such intense ways. And I think part of the challenge then, right, is like, as we continue to think about what safety means or what even community feels like, right? It's sort of like, well, you know, what what degrees of harm feel central and how do we know, mm. right, whether like, you know, trying to save lives in one discrete, you know, zone of violence, how do we know what its relationship is to sort right, of this much right. larger scale where it's harder to feel something, right? I mean, I think that's one of the challenges I know I feel as someone trying to speak publicly but the attacks on trans people where I'm like, well, there are all these spectacular versions. There is the threat, people being murdered. There's the specter of suicide. There's just lives that yeah. wear out. And there are just, those are the, that's the numeric majority of people. And I do care about them. And I think that we, it's weird. It's frustrating to me that we just don't have very much vocabulary for talking about that. I think in part because we're so hung up on how hard it is to talk about these really intense forms of violence. And, you know, I don't say that as if that's offering a prescription to do something. You know, I think it's just really yeah. complicated. And I think that that's part of the dizzying moment that we're living in where there's so much rising tide of discrete violence, but it's also on the backs of so much misery 
in this country, right? And like, that's hard to quantify. That's much harder to digest, right? Unfortunately, right? Like the nervous system can turn mm. on that vigilance and can you can feel that rush of cortisol and understand and imagine also from like growing up on TV and movies, what it would be like to be in a highly violent, short-lived situation. Yeah, like a right. Shooting, right? right. But it's much harder to sit with and just be like, what does it mean that on the whole queer and trans people are suffering in X, Y, you know, Z ways, you know, right now. I think that's a lot harder to kind of wrap our head around. And I just feel like that's part of the riddle yeah. to me that this legacy of organizing is reminding us is like, well, you know, if the police are still statistically more dangerous to us than strangers or militia, or if poverty ultimately is going to be the thing, you know, that, that harms the most of us, not to say be utilitarian, pick and choose based on that, but just what does that do to mm. our calculus, right? But also, how do we feel our way through those things? And I'm not sure. I think it's really hard. You can think about them. You can look at numbers on a, on a page or whatever, but to, to, to feel that, right? It's, it's a lot harder to feel that in your yeah. body, I think. Yeah. I really mm -hmm. appreciate that reframing. Well, I think that is a good place to end that conversation. Uh, like we said, no super clear answers, but uh, if you listeners have thoughts about queer self-defense militancy, what we should be doing to take care of each other in these times, uh, please share it with us. Uh, you can write uh, to uh, outwardpodcast at slate.com. This month, we are excited to talk about a new film that tries to give us a new way to understand the lives of trans people living in mid 20th century America. And also, how the stories we think we know from the trans past inform what we think about trans lives today. It's a documentary called Framing Agnes, directed by Chase Joint, and it centers on a set of six trans people who were interviewed and treated at UCLA's gender clinic in the 1950s. One of the things that makes this film interesting, in addition to the gorgeous critical and historical commentary throughout from our very own <laughs> Jules Gill Peterson, who is just impossibly glamorous in this documentary, my God, is the format of the film. So it comprises a series of reenactments in which six trans actors play the parts of those people whose stories were in the UCLA archives. So we see the transcripts of their interviews with the Dr. Harold Garfinkel brought to life. And those scenes are interspersed with interviews with the actors themselves as themselves, reflecting on the people they're embodying, how their own lives resonate with those people from the past, and on how all trans stories, even contemporary ones, get packaged and told and remembered by people who have the power to do those things. We're so excited to be joined by Jen Richards, who portrays the trans woman Barbara in the film. You might have also seen Jen in Tales of the City or Mrs. Fletcher, both fabulous shows that we've discussed <laughs> yeah. on Slate Podcasts. Um, Jen, it's such a pleasure. Welcome to Outward. Thank you so much for having me. Can you start by giving us an introduction to Barbara and how you sort of brought yourself into her life and her world? Barbara was a discovery of Chase and the rest of uh, his research partners. I've been following Chase's work with Agnes and with this archive for a long time, and he was so excited when he made this discovery of these additional uh, subjects of, of 
these interviews and this research at UCLA. And he came to me with Barbara. Part of the, the genius of what Chase did in terms of the casting of the additional trans participants is to kind of sync up some of the issues that mm. come out through mm. their interviews uh, with the real life work of, of those of us who are, who are doing these parts. And Barbara was um, a hyper-connected trans woman at that time. She's someone who was uh, very much in the know, knew the trans community in Los Angeles, was very aware about all the different doctors and the kind of work they were doing, their different mm -hmm. reputations, uh, even kind of slyly and proudly claims knowledge of a certain Hollywood star who is secretly trans that no one knows about. <laughs> and uh, my work in the trans community had originally started kind of on the um, activism and advocacy uh, side of things. And I had done a lot of work that was geared towards bringing uh, trans people together and creating community amongst trans people before I, I uh, segued into doing on-camera performance work. And so Barbara felt very much like a, a touchstone for me, a kind of... Um, clear ancestor to the kind of work that I was already doing, which was a really exciting discovery for me, just on that surface level in terms of interests, in terms of connection, and then to discover her personality in the transcript, her kind of combativeness, um, her clear mm -hmm. certainty that she knows more than uh, Garfinkel, <laughs> the kind of... Um, way that she holds a mirror back up to Garfinkel through the interviews and shows his own ignorance which then kind of underlies the underlines the, the power differences between them is is quite beguiling <laughs> oh yeah totally I felt like and you kind of mentioned this in the film that Barbara's confidence mm -hmm. and self-possession really comes through in the transcript and you have to imagine that being in a situation like having an interview with a doctor who holds all manner of power um, over the person being interviewed, like that couldn't have been a, an incredibly comfortable or easy situation to be in for Barbara. And yet she, it, it, it almost seems like she knows that he's the one who's getting the privileged treatment here, you know? Yeah, exactly. She has the confidence of someone who doesn't need him. Mm -hmm. She knows her own mind. She knows the different paths available before her and knows that this isn't the sole gatekeeper of what she needs. And so she can kind of dance around him as needed. So the film starts with and sort of centers on the figure of Agnes, who is a semi sort of well-known figure in trans history. What role does Agnes sort of play in this documentary in terms of what uh, we want to learn about the other characters and and what their stories say about the fact that you know Agnes is the one whose mm -hmm. history got told. Yeah, so we know about Agnes because she kind of became famous for for you know something that she did you know when she was at UCLA and for her relationship with these doctors. It was tumultuous and complicated enough. Um, I don't want to give away a kind of important point that gets revealed in the film, but it was, you know, interesting enough that those doctors just wrote a lot about her. And mm. so she kind of exists like a lot of trans people from the past as a case study, right? Someone written about in a literature review, right? And so like sociologists had talked about Agnes for a really long time as a kind of, you know, warning about how untrustworthy and sort of suspicious trans people are. Um, but then, like, I think trans people a little bit later, you know, maybe in the 90s and the 2000s started to reclaim her and say, like, ah, oh, yeah, it's really cool that we sometimes have to make up stories and we have to, like, 
you know, do complicated things to get mm. what we want. And that makes us sort of, you know, kind of heroes or it's a sort of heroic endeavor. Mm. Um, but that's the only reason why we know so much about her. And so all of these other transcripts, right, are from people who were there at the same time, who are talking to the same, you know, doctors and researchers, um, but who just for whatever reason didn't rise to the status of being important enough to be written about and just didn't get that kind of profile. And so Agnes is a really weird sort of person in relation to someone like Barbara, you know, because you know, Jed, you were just talking about how well connected mm -hmm. Barbara was, whereas it seems like Agnes is kind of a more isolated person, yeah. you know, who who is on a, a sort of transition journey. And, you know, when that journey arrives somewhere she's happy with, she right. kind of disappears from the record and we never hear from her again. And sure, we never hear from Barbara again either, but like Barbara just lets on so much about her life. Um, and I think we really see that kind of difference dramatized, you know, in the way that Zachary Drucker brings Agnes to life um, versus sort of the way that you bring Barbara to life. And, and I think something just happens, right? When it's like, we just don't have to pin all of the 1950s on Agnes's mm. shoulders anymore. Mm. It doesn't all have to be this one you know, trans woman from the 50s who like is doing a lot, right? But I just think like, I don't know. I mean, it's in, in the film, we meet Agnes first and then Barbara's actually the next person we meet. Um, and, and there's something so interesting to me about that because the way it's like, you know, those two people are never technically, you know, diegetically in the mm, room at the same time, right. but they're going through the same thing. And sometimes we cut between them and it's just like a whole different atmosphere, a whole different vibe to use 2022 language. Um, <laughs> I, I'm sort of curious, like when you were coming to Barbara, I mean, obviously you were just saying there are parts of her that you really connected to, but do you feel like you also had this sort of like Agnes style image of trans women from the 50s, like stuck in, I mean, I'm just sort of curious what the other reference points were. I mean, you've actually also played like trans women from history before. So I mean, actually, I'm sure you had a lot more, you know, coming into your process and decision making there, you know, as, as an actor. But I'm just sort of curious because I feel like Agnes is more the typical imagination people have of the 50s. Isolated trans woman. Yeah who is sort of mysterious. We don't really know that much about her, but also ultimately she kind of just blends in and is a very conventional picture of say like white middle-class domesticity. And, and Barbara feels just different to me, mm -hmm. I don't know. Absolutely, I have to cast my mind back to prior to my own coming out. So, you know, 15 or 20 years ago when I was first reading about trans people and trying to figure out whether or not I was trans, I did have this very um, kind of narrow sense of what it meant to be trans. And one of the aspects of the way that trans lives have been framed, and not just from the outside in, but also even, you know, to ourselves, like the kinds of, you know, message boards mm. that I was on uh, once upon a time, or even just uh, perusing magazines, there was a, the, the kind of dominant narrative was that at least for trans women, I think also true for trans women, but specific for trans women, the goal was to was to pass uh, and to do what we call go stealth, which means you transition, you know, very neatly from one box to another. You know, you're you're in the boy box and you transition to the girl box, and once you can successfully do that, mm -hmm. you disappear. There, there's no sense that that there was an ongoing uh, community, that there was any kind of sense of of a debt to community, of a sense of hmm. service or what you owed, or or a, like um, a historical legacy that you are a part of. It's just you. 
it's, it was almost like this medical condition that uh, is kind of tragic that you have it, you try right. and get it fixed, and then you just assimilate in life. <clears throat> and what that means is for every generation of successful trans people, there's a disappearance. There's a disappearance from archives, from public records. Um, there's a disappearance of what was learned in the course of that uh, person's transition, of the kind of community that they had, the kind of support that they had to go through that, uh, you know, what skills and talents they gained, and then also the way, like the other things that that person was capable of doing and what they did in the world. There might have been very successful, you know, trans politicians and actors and lawyers and doctors that we simply mm-hmm. don't know about. There's this continual erasure, both from the outside and from within the community. And I remember when I uh, finally decided to, to transition, when I finally accepted the fact that I was trans, it felt very much like a death sentence at the time. You know, it was this thing like, I, I remember reading several times on different kinds of blogs at, at the time that only transition if your only other option mm. is suicide. Like wow, that, that yeah. was the way that it was seen. Like, don't wow. do this unless you're at the point where it's mm-hmm. death or transition because your life is going to be so much worse after transition. And you kind of had to accept that you're going to lead this like sad, lonely life where you were constantly having to lie to everybody about who you were and hide this aspect of yourself and your past. And instead, I found quite the opposite when I came out. And some of this is a, a result of, you know, the sudden prominence of, of social media. Some of it's just an accident of the kind of friend groups that I, that I that I found in my own personality. But I immediately found so mm-hmm. much community and became so invested in growing that community and making that community more visible uh, that I was shocked at how many trans people were around and how happy their lives were for the most part. Like how and I was like, how come no one ever talks about this part about how things are so much better? You're really relationships are richer, mm-hmm. you feel more authentic, more yourself, more free. And you're also freed from this kind of crippling anxiety that, that I had carried throughout my life. And I wanted to talk more about that. So Agnes was very much my sense of what it meant to be trans prior to actually huh. transitioning. And then Barbara is very uh. much my sense of what it means to be trans after transitioning. Uh, and I love that we get both of those. And I, the question I have for you, Jules, because I'm really intrigued, is why is it that Agnes was elevated to that position within literature and academia? How come it's that we had this view of Agnes of being definitive of what a trans experience was versus Barbara, someone who was confident and in loving relationships and in a very widespread and robust community of trans people. Why did we get Agnes and not Barbara? Wow, that's such a good question. I mean, I think you kind of just answered it for us though, because I'm not sure that that dilemma has ended, right? Like, I think you were just telling us a little bit about it again, you know, from your own experience. And I can certainly relate to versions of that too, where it's like, Agnes was a good story for the doctors, for for conventionality. She was a better story for kind of 1950s America, um, right? Because in that sense, it's like she's trying to be quote unquote normal in the way other people perceive her. Doesn't matter what she really thought and wanted. The point is how other people see her. And so her failure or success at that, either way, that doesn't really rock the boat, right? Either she succeeds and disappears, right? And then we can be like, we did a good job, right? Mm, we helped yeah. someone be a better woman. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then presumably she went on to be a housewife, right? Or if she failed, we can dismiss it and say that's her failure. That was mm. on her, right? And we don't really have to change anything about the world that we live in. Whereas like, I just think like Barbara was a lot more threatening. I mean, and I think that's the thing that you bring to life so intensely and so beautifully in the way that you sort of let Barbara have this extra level of knowledge that she's sort of 
mm-hmm. it's so sly, right? Like, I think a lot comes through in the way, in the pacing, in the tone of how you deliver lines, the pauses you take, um, the incredible <laughs> facial expressive work that you're doing, right? There's all this extra language that it's like, it's not even obvious if Garfinkel, you know, played by Chase Joint is, uh, you know, is even receiving it. But I have to also imagine that the real Barbara was like that, or that there were trans women like that back then, because there are trans women like that today. And I feel like those people, because they let that little bit of like, hey, I know what's <laughs> going on here better than you, right? No one wants to deal with the implications of that, because that means that the ones who are the sad, tragic deviants that were actually like a little better at this game called life, right? Yeah. And like the people in power aren't going to enjoy that. So I think it's no mistake, right, that Barbara went there, had this, you know, series of interviews or even just one interview, and then they were like, let's just put that in the filing cabinet mm. and never touch it, right? Because it doesn't, it, she really rocked the boat. I have to believe that that fault line in the 50s is just like, traveling all the way to the present day right it just feels so real to me now but i don't think it's because we're projecting it from today backwards i really feel like we inherit that fault line let's play a clip from the film to hear some of the way barbara conducted herself i'd say i know 22 of the 36 women in town who have had the operation even that hollywood star well i shouldn't say her name Whenever we hear about someone who's been arrested for cross-dressing, we reach out. There's a group of us. We do hospital visits after someone's operation so they won't be alone. We talk to each other about what hospitals to avoid. I can always tell who's had which procedure by how nice the room is or how long the stay. I was wondering if we could um, hear from you both a little bit about the experience of making this movie because it's such a, it's, you know, Christina, I think you did an admirable admirable job of trying to explain it in your introduction, but I've not really seen anything like it with the mix of reenactments of sort of, you know, talking head interviews uh, with sort of sit down discussions between the actors and the director. All of that's being done sort of at once and mixed together in this really fascinating way for the viewer. But I was wondering what it was like to do all of those various uh, kinds of performance, I guess you could call it all performance, um, as an actor, as as an academic. It was weird, and I did not understand what we were doing. (laughs) I was was quite confused. I've done quite a few talking head interviews, and I've done, you know, know, quite a bit of, of performance, but this particular blend, and it wasn't just that we were doing two things, it was really we were doing kind of at least three things mm. because there were the reenactments which were verbatim from the transcripts and done you know in character on a set and you know shown in black and white but then they were also capturing moments between right. Chase yeah. and I yeah. you know as we were figuring out how to approach mm. the transcripts and all that and then there were the interviews with us still like in our hair and makeup from the character but in our own clothes just off of the set then there was the kind of reenactments of our lives so for for my scenes it was uh, at a hair salon Mm -hmm. that I worked at um, and so I was doing that and then interviews with me as totally as myself like dressed hair and makeup as myself in that space so there were at least four or five different things that were that were happening and I had absolutely no idea how this was going to turn out I never understood like how is this going to work as a movie it really didn't make sense 
And also, uh, when we shot the short version of it uh, and did these interviews, Jules wasn't involved yet. And it didn't totally work. Like, I always felt like something was missing. And it was when I saw the final form with Jules that it was such a revelation of like, oh, that's the piece that was missing. That's what threads this this all together. So I confess, I never really understood what we were doing until I saw it. <laughs> you know, you commit to each little piece of it. Like, okay, I'm here and I'm, I'm it look like this and I'm talking about these things and I'll make that work. But I have... There was a little meta part of my brain that's just like, how is this going to come together mm-hmm. as a movie like, <laughs> and create a, a pleasurable viewing experience that I could not conceive yeah. until I saw yeah. it. <laughs> was there anything about that sort of smorgasbord of performance that changed the way you felt about Barbara and her story's resonance with your own life? It certainly underscored the the similarities. Uh, that I mean, that's always the case. One one of, part of the nature of any kind of performance, if if you give it any kind of real attention and effort, is that it, ultimately mm-hmm. it spills over. Because the kind mm-hmm. of key to making a good performance is finding those resonances in yourself, and then you know you just kind of carry that through your mind for the whole period that you're 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 doing it. Um, I just uh, just wrapped up doing um, Shakespeare for the last three months, and I'm still very oh, wow. much like in my mm. character and thinking mm. about the way things that she does. Uh, it's just one of the you know, workplace <laughs> hazards <laughs> of our of our profession. Uh, so for me, the the big thing, and I actually I think I I might have even mentioned this in the film, is that Barbara's um, confidence and kind of conviction. Um, were really intriguing to me and seemed foreign to me at the time. Um, I don't, I, at the time I didn't feel like I moved the world with, with her Mm. kind of confidence of like, I know who I am. I know where I belong. I know how to access what I need and I'm not concerned about people, you know, getting in my way because I know what needs to be done. I felt like I've gained that sense and I, and I do think some ask, some small part of it um, is Barbara kind of mm. getting into me. And like once you embody that and you feel it in your bones, like, oh, I like how this feels. I like moving through the world mm. in this way. And I'm going to take that little bit of, of Barbara moving forward. I think that's why Barbara is just so lovable. I mean, I feel like every time I watch the film, I'm always just, I mean, it's also your performance, Jen, it's just incredible. But like, there is something about that confidence that's infectious. I mean, it, it just, I don't know. And and even has interesting, like, almost counterintuitive effects, because I would say the same thing, even though I'm you know, the one person ostensibly not acting um, in the film, you know, this being a part of the project and, and actually, like, really, like, it's so weird to me now, because I, I, like, tell people, like, I came in at the end of this project, and and one of the really interesting things that we did to prepare for me being narrator was just watching a kind of rough assembly of a lot of the footage uh-huh. shot so far, and so I kind of sat with, you know, each of, each of the people, including Barbara, and just sort of, we had some conversations that night, and then the next day, walk in, you know, to the set and, and get ready to just sit down in the chair, right, and and I was so nervous because I've, I'd never done something like that before. And I was like, okay, well, I know how to be a scholar or a professor, but like Chase had invited me to also be mm-hmm. me. And I yeah. was like, well, I don't, I don't 
normally get to do that. <laughs> you know, in my day job, I'm a professor. Sure, I'm very confident. I think I'm good at what I do. But like, you know, there haven't really been like trans women of color, you know, on the history faculty in many universities. Well, many yeah. universities, and and so you know, I always feel like I'm just making a shit up as I go along in life, anyways. And I was like, so I can sort of understand why I'm here. Um, but I was like, but I want to get somewhere, and I feel like you know, just being a part of this ensemble and team had this kind of you know transformative effect that I feel like you know when people go and watch a movie I'm like you're watching in real time the birth of like this Jules you know the one who's sitting here right now talking very candidly and very calmly <laughs> um, and with less like you know I'm a Capricorn so like I can do this now with a lot less um, you know over preparation than I used to and and so like there's a kind of confidence for me that's about vulnerability because I maybe you know had the kind of plucky well I'll show you that I know everything kind of thing going for me my whole life but not this sort of slow down sit in it and see how it feels see what else you want to communicate and I just think there's something really interesting because I love what you were saying Jen that like it's not like oh this could only happen in acting trans parts. Clearly, it's just like part of right. acting brings up all of these questions about the relationship of the self to performance and how you kind of get infected by ideas or moments or feelings. But on the other hand, I just feel like because of the history of trans representation, that kind of, you know, coming together as a team to be able to both be kind of exceptional and performance driven and also pull back for moments of vulnerability that are sort of less produced, like that feels, I don't know, that, that continues to kind of dazzle me. And I just want like more mm -hmm. of that in the world for everyone all the time. I feel like it's just like, it's a good in itself, you know, and it feels nice to just be part of something that's kind of pushing that agenda out into the world. One of the things that the panoply of different formats this film takes um, did for me was really underscore, and obviously this is one of the themes of the film, how our understanding of other people's experiences are always mediated through something. Um, and so in the case of these interviews, even though they're trans people speaking their lives in their own words, they're being prompted right. by a cis person, you know, a cis white man who's a doctor, who's a, you know, university or faculty member. So it's not exactly like an unvarnished depiction of someone's life. <laughs> Even if we were reading their diaries, it wouldn't be, right? right. And when um, the actors in the film and you, Jules, and Chase are talking about their own understanding of trans stories and how they came to their own identities, um, people talked about, you know, talk shows, seeing sort of trans and gender nonconforming people on talk shows. Jenny mentioned message boards. It feels like both back then and today, our understanding of what it means to be any person in the world, but also a trans person in the world, is always coming through some sort of middle space that can distort it. I wonder if you could speak to how, um, what you think the film can mm. teach us about that, and also what sort of stands out to you as, a, as that middle space today when we're trying to understand trans lives. Jules really extended my thinking about this issue of how we encounter um, others uh, because of the way that she talks, particularly about Georgia, who's a black trans woman played by Angelica Ross. and. Jules kind of anticipates what the audience feels and then mm -hmm. complicates it at each step of the way. So Georgia comes on and as a black trans woman, she has a unique set of issues and you can really feel um, her kind of 
often rage, often a little bit of grief and frustration, but also her strength and resilience. And it, it creates all kinds of loaded feelings uh, for, for me in particular as an audience member as a trans person, but I suspect anyone watching it. And then Jules immediately takes that and then like turns the mirror around and makes you as the audience ask why mm-hmm. you feel that way about Georgia and whether that actually says anything about Georgia. And if instead it really just says something about you. Uh, and it's part of what I think is so great about this movie is I don't think I would have asked myself those kinds of questions, uh, particularly in a documentary with really compelling subjects. I'm just kind of swept along and interested in their narratives. And I do feel this kind of instinctual human, oh, I wish things had been easier for her, or I wish she could have had this, or like, oh, I'm so inspired. And then and, and then Jules just kind of complicates all that. And then all of a sudden I feel unsettled and I, <laughs> and I suddenly look at everyone on screen in a different kind yeah. of way of like, oh yeah, like I'm just projecting all of my own feelings on that. And there's all these other questions that I'm, I'm not asking. Uh, Jules raises this really incredible question in the, in, the, in the film about whether or not the people who were erased from this narrative might have benefited from the right, erasure, right. from mm-hmm. not being as Such visible. It's like, damn, I never thought of that. <laughs> like, yeah. it never would occur to me to think about that. Um, the value of invisibility. So this yeah. Idea- yeah. The value of invisibility and the ways in which uh, our encounters with the past and with other trans people are so um, deeply mediated by these different kinds of of formats, whether it's a talk show or, you know, message boards. Um, I I think the, the kind of... I don't, I don't want to say sad truth underlying that, but, but clearly part of the issue, because this is so common that we first see trans people on screens or, you know, in literature studies, is the lack of visibility of trans people in, mm. you know, regular life and the, and the lack of, of spaces by which we can encounter each other as whole human beings in real space and real time. And it is kind of curious to think of what our sense of ourselves would be like if we had... You know, if, if like your first encounter, you know, like if you're a gay man or a lesbian woman, maybe in high school and you, there's a GSA or you have like a crush and like the ways mm. that you encounter your mm. own queerness through actual people in the real world, how different that is and how that structures your sense of queerness differently than a trans person who might not even know that they're trans until they see a movie or mm-hmm. see a character on a TV and show like, oh, that's that's what I'm experiencing. That's what I'm feeling. And when all of those depictions have been made by cis people and are often, you know, rent through with uh, disgust or hostility or mockery, uh, what that does for our own self-image. Yeah, like it's, it's, it's really powerful. And then it loads you with a sense of a kind of an additional layer of responsibility in that since we're doing this here with this movie, we are putting more trans narratives out there, more trans people on screens and knowing that some people will be encountering both us, us and themselves for the first time through this media and while being hyper aware of that impact. <laughs> uh, it's kind of dizzying. <laughs> yeah. It's like our lives are just so dramatic, but, but not because we choose for them right. to be right. Like you just sort of, I think gave a beautiful account of how like, when you're trying to pull your inside out to be able to live in who you reasonably certain you actually are, you find that what you're pulling out of, of your inside is actually the distillation of a culture's one million fantasies about people mm. like you. And that causes just such a bizarre fracture in the self that I think, you know, it certainly happens to other people, but it's uniquely a trans thing too. And I think one of the interesting questions is like, how do we ride the drama, which we are riding that drama in this film, but how could we ride it somewhere 
kind of like to the point where I feel like to me the answer is not better representation or subtracting all the negative things or whatever. It's actually like, can we just get to a place where it's not a big deal that we encounter encounter other people through uh, through a medium, right? That that our idea about others is mediated. That should be normal. That should be unremarkable. It shouldn't be so high stakes. And I mm-hmm. feel like, again, I just feel like. I, now I'm just projecting everything I want to be true onto Barbara and saying she did it for us. But I feel like, you know, Jed, you just, just again, Barbara's slyness, I feel like it's just this quiet testimony to like, oh no, I know how it really could be. It's not a big deal to me. I'm very happy and self-satisfied. And even if she, you know, was sort of performing that in the moment or you were emphasizing that in your performance, it's so powerful to just sit with that as a kind of manifesto yeah. for like, things not being a big deal for us to accept the limitations of the way we move through the world as interesting but not devastating problems Mm. and for those problems not to be pinned on the backs of trans people to validate everybody else's bullshit about their gender because like gender is full of bullshit (laughs) that's cool like let's just you know like let's chill things get really interesting when we relax a little bit (laughs) (laughs) and I I don't know about you Jules but for me just like just knowing that I live in Los Angeles and just knowing that Barbara was mm. here and part yeah. of a large and thriving community right. mm. with many, many trans people that long ago changes my sense of of my own, you know, like uh, my ancestors, but also yeah. like being part of an ongoing legacy and puts lie to the what is kind of implied by so much of the anti-trans rhetoric today that it's like it's a fad it's new it's something we don't know about oh we need to slow down we're still figuring this out give people time to you know to adjust they're still learning it's like but no like we like i i just played someone who you know 70 years ago was part of this thriving community i so i just did um a, a mostly trans and non-binary production of Shakespeare's uh, mm-hmm. As You Like It. And I, I played the part of Celia, wow. the two female leads in As You Like It are Rosalind and Celia. And we, they were both played by trans women in this production. Mm-hmm. And uh, as part of like my research, uh, and I've always been a big Shakespeare buff, but I found out that there were these two, you know, boy, and I'm doing that with scare quotes, uh, actors who joined, uh, you know, Shakespeare's troupe in the late uh, 1590s. And and their names are lost to history but these two Mm. boy actors were apparently so good Mm. at playing adult women on stage that Shakespeare created first Beatrice and Hero and Hmm. Much Ado About Nothing and then the two female leads in um, Henry V and then uh, Portia and Calpurnia and Julius Caesar then Rosalind and Celia and As You Like (laughs) It and then Gertrude and Ophelia and Hamlet all in a row like these like these these classic (laughs) pairs like these like female heroines Shakespeare had never written such complicated women with such rich and interesting lives and um, female characters hadn't been given so much to do on stage if it were it not for these two quote-unquote boy actors and like of course they were trans women <laughs> right. you know we didn't have the language for that then but of yeah. course they were their whole lives were spent embodying womanhood on stage and like really complicated women that are still you know rich to this day and and like i realized like oh we we really have always been here the ways in which we manifest the ways in which we're made visible 
the ways in which our experiences are made legible um, by popular culture, by ourselves, and by our community are constantly shifting mm-hmm. and depend upon, you know, historical and geographic and all kinds of sociopolitical circumstances. But that doesn't erase the fact that we've mm-hmm. always been here. And to yeah. suddenly discover and have that realization about, uh, for me, for, for Shakespeare's time, and then also for Barbara, like in my own community in Los Angeles, uh, is... It makes it gives me a sense of security and a connection of mm. uh, just a sense of belonging that stretches across both time and space in a way that I found incredibly empowering. Yeah. Well, unfortunately, that's all the time we have. But um, what a beautiful way to end our conversation, um, Jen. Thank you so much for joining us. Truly, my pleasure. Well, Framing Agnes it debuted at Sundance this year. It's now in limited release. Uh, there's potentially a wider release in the works. So stay tuned, utilize your Google device, and uh, definitely go see it. All right, that's about it for this month. But before we go, as always, one last time though, for 2022, we've got your monthly updates to the gay agenda. Uh, (laughs) Christina, do you want to kick us off? Yeah, so the holidays are approaching. Uh, and I don't know about you guys, but I have been, uh, taking out my credit card, buying a lot of stuff online for my loved ones. And I wanted to recommend two queer spots on the interweb to buy gay shit. (laughs) Um, you might not be able to get these things in time for Christmas or whatever, um, just based on when this episode airs, but it's never the wrong time to buy gay shit on the internet. Um, so I want to shout out the little gay shop. Um, it's the little gay shop.com. Um, there's incredible books there, zines, um, art. I found socks with the word butts on them. Um, just really anything gay. Uh, and, and also a lot of queer stuff that you wouldn't be able to find in any sort of mainstream online gift marketplace. It's very cute. The other one I want to recommend is a place I'd actually been in person, but they have an online shop too. It's called Adam's Nest in oh, yeah. P-Town. Mm-hmm. And I got a set of note cards there, like sort of blank inside note cards, which I actually think is a great gift for people because it's always mm. nice to have like really stylish and beautiful note cards around for the right. unexpected occasion you might need to write a card mm-hmm. to someone for. And they have not just note cards, but a lot of other like fun collaborations with artists. Apropos of this episode, they have shirts that say shoot loads, not guns. Oh um, part of the sales wow. of which goes to gays against guns. And they do a lot of their products are sort of like in collaboration with, or, you know, the proceeds, part of the proceeds go to a certain like LGBTQ organization. It's just a really fun collection of gay stuff. And, you know, if you're going to be, a consumer of goods, you might as well consume a shirt that says shoot loads, mm-hmm. not guns. Again, that spot is called Adam's Nest. You can find it at adamsnest.com. Jules, what do you want to recommend? So I know we've already, you know, kind of movied, movied ourselves That's not <laughs> um, on this episode, but I have a kind of another movie recommendation, but I haven't seen the movie yet. So I'm going to make the recommendation through a lovely um, review piece by a dear friend and very talented um, thinker and writer, Eva Pensis, who just published a piece um, on December 9th in the LA Review of Books titled Not a Transition. It's, it's a piece about a new film um, by the filmmaker Andrea 
Palaro, titled Monica. This is this wonderful new film um, starring mm. Trace Lissette, uh, the <gasps> wonderful, yeah. talented, incomparable Trace Lissette. And it's a really interesting film that Ido Pensis writes about as being a kind of trans film that really pushes, again, the question of like, what is a trans film? It's not a film about transition. It's a film about, you know, someone needing to go home to be with, you know, an ill or, you know, alien mother um, and brings up a lot of really interesting kind of, you know, questions around around trans life without sort of doing it in a kind of didactic sort of overly, you know, tell me kind of way. And I think makes it, you know, seem like a bit more of a beautiful kind of mundane meditation. Um, mm. Anyways, I really encourage folks to, to maybe, you know, go, go and read Eva's piece and sort of, you know, let that be your portal to thinking about going to see um, the film. But I just, you know, to me, it's like, of course, holidays, I want to catch up on movies um, while I'm taking a little break, but also just sort of, you know, really shouting out to this moment where there is now, I just think, a wider swath of stories that are being told that are like, I guess trans stories, but in the sense that what a trans mm-hmm. story is has changed a lot, um, and I think it's it's actually sometimes those successes can be kind of quiet uh, because they don't come at you with that sort of sensational story mm. like we were yeah, talking about yeah. earlier. So it looks like a gorgeous movie. I mean, I just think Trace Lissette is just like a treasure, um, yeah. and and Ava wrote really beautifully about it. So highly recommend um, catching that piece um, at the LARB and then going to see uh, Monica in a theater near you. Um, Brian, what have you got for us? I have got a cocktail for you. So I'm calling it the Cuddle Puddle. <gasps> you yeah. invented it? Well, you invented so it? it's oh, based, yeah. I'm, I'm going to give half credit. Uh, it's based on a another <laughs> cocktail called the Semester Abroad that I discovered Ooh. by the mixologist uh, Anders Ericsson, but I have adapted it. Um, Wow, I didn't realize that cocktails had bylines. <laughs> you know, there's only like four real cocktails in the world. It's like they're all variations yeah. on the thing. So, but I'm anyway. I, I, to be totally uh, forthcoming, I did it started with his recipe, but changed it quite a bit. So it's it's called the cuddle puddle. I call it that because it's really the, the <laughs> soft, warm blanket that you can sort of wrap yourself in. Mm. Maybe it helps you muffle a little of the stress that comes from this time of year. Uh, it's cozy, it's boozy, it's calming. It has sort of a ginger orange spice thing happening. Um, so if you're into that, that's what it is. And I'll give you the recipe quickly. It is two ounces of rye, one ounce ginger liqueur, a mm. half ounce of fernet branca or like a similar sort of spicy mm. amaro like that. And then just a dash of orange bitters. And you're going to stir it a long time over ice strain that into your cocktail glass uh, and then if you want you can garnish it with an orange peel but it is lovely and a a very nice thing to tuck into uh, sort of at the end of the night when you're having your holiday feelings so the cuddle puddle we'll put it on the the show page so people can see it Wow, it's a bespoke (laughs) agenda (laughs) you're recommending a thing that you made I love that And I also want to say, I'm just this, you know, I know taste is a little subjective, but I feel like you've constructed a cocktail that is both gay and (gasps) lesbian, and therefore, dare I say, bisexual in some other third thing, right? Like, beautiful. You're giving all the notes. So this is really a drink for everyone, except for folks who don't (laughs) drink. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, Thank you. I I didn't set out with such high hopes, but I'm, I'm pleased. Well, that is the end of the show and the end of 2022. Uh, as always, Aww. if you have feedback or topic ideas, you can send them to us at outwardpodcast at slate.com uh, or reach out to us on Facebook 
or Twitter, I guess, maybe if that still exists, uh, at Slate Outward. June Thomas is our producer and the top monarch of our own little butterfly brigade. If you like Outward, and you know you do, please subscribe if you haven't already. Tell your friends about it. Rate and review the show so that others can find it and enjoy it with you. We will be back uh, in your feeds on January 18th. Until then, happy holidays, everyone, and here's to making the next year the queerest one it can be. Bye.